The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We find ourselves again in this study. We've been in Romans 5 for some time, and uh, specifically in verses 6 through 11. And this is really broken down into a five-part series. These verses are so dense. They are so rich. uh, It's almost like you're passing by a one-time visit to a a foreign country, and you think, I'll never get to see this place again like I am now, and I just want us to stop and enjoy all that the Lord has for us here. Romans chapter 5. We're working through verses 6 through 11. Let me read that passage for us to put it in context. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. A few years ago, I was a college pastor. We took some students on a road trip. It was a great road trip. It was a fun road trip. We, we drove to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. We got in a little later than we wanted to to set up camp. It was at a campground. And everyone was scurrying and hurrying about, trying to get the tent set up, trying to get the food prep for the next morning. And we were moving as fast as we could. We were losing daylight. Finally, we were all set. But the sun was way below the horizon, and it was dark. We knew that there was a trail that went about 100 yards over to where the edge of the canyon was. So we all wanted to go and see that great side of the Grand Canyon. It was dark, overcast, and foggy, so we could barely see anything at all. We finally got over to the edge. We could tell we were at the edge. It was pretty obvious. There was an outcropping of rocks, these massive boulders that we sat on, and we sat there for a couple hours. We sang worship songs. We, we shared prayer requests. We prayed together. We talked. It was a sweet time of fellowship. Pretty soon, everyone got tired, and we went back to the tents and went to sleep. I was up very early the next morning, before anyone else was, and decided to go back to that spot to have my quiet time, to have some devotions. So I walked through the woods, through this trail, and got, I saw the outcropping of rocks, and as I approached this set of boulders, it was a beautiful morning, a pristine sky, not a cloud in the sky, beautiful. The closer I got, I felt my heart begin to race. 
and got an awful sick feeling in my stomach. The place we've been sitting just a few hours earlier was right on a sheer cliff of a thousand feet. I had no idea the danger we were flirting in. We were walking around, jumping back and forth on the boulders. Let me share with you another story. In high school, I went out with some friends to hang out one night. My father was very clear. Be back at 10 p.m. I remember that date. I remember that day. I remember that time like it was yesterday. Went and hung out with some friends. Uh, we, we, uh, there were, uh, we only had two cars. There were three drivers at the time. My mom uh, had uh, one car that was out. I had the other car out with my friends. My dad said, be back at 10. I came back about a half an hour late. It was way before the time of cell phones, by the way. I walked in the house, and both of my parents were sitting on the couch waiting for me. I could tell this was not going to be a time of joyful fellowship. Turned out my dad needed the car I was driving earlier to go to a commitment that uh, he had made and was not able to go to it. I was busted big time. What was interesting, though, looking back, is the time I had at my friend's house was a blast. I had no idea then the trouble I was in. Now, when you put those two stories together, in both situations, when you put them together, I had no idea the danger I was in when I was in danger. I had no idea the trouble I was in when I was in trouble. That is a picture of humanity before God that this passage addresses. In ever-present danger of the wrath of God, in ever-present trouble because of the righteousness of God. It's not surprising that some people are so deluded by their okayness in their own heart before God. Some people think that they're just fine with God. They don't understand the danger they're in. They don't understand the trouble they're in with God. And they just live life just like I was over at my friend's house with no care for anything that was coming. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, on that great day will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says, I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me into hell. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The people didn't know they were in trouble. The people didn't know there was danger. The people did not understand the coming wrath of God. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. It's the nature of man because God is gracious and God is merciful because the law of reaping what you sow doesn't always happen immediately that we presume upon God. Men think they're okay only to show up at the final judgment and realize, as Jonathan Edwards says, my scheme was not good. In other words, my plan to get things right before I came to this judgment seat was not effective. 
Everyone, every human ever born lives in an incredible situation and in an incredible opportunity. God's mercy, God's grace are upon everyone this morning who has a heartbeat. God has been gracious not to execute his justice and his wrath on us the moment we sin and never give us another chance. You read in Exodus 34, the attributes of God as he passes by Moses when Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, you understand that God is gracious, compassionate. He extends loving kindness to thousands of generations. There are seven, um, depending on how you diagram it, or nine uh, expositions of God's character and his grace and justice, grace and mercy before there's ever the last phrase which says he will bring every act to judgment. Do you understand that you have a God who is more inclined to be gracious and kind to you in this moment than to give you and I what we deserve, which is wrath? Because the Son of God has yet to return to the earth in judgment, as we read in our scripture reading in Matthew. There is time to be reconciled to God and to repent. Let me give you a little uh, preview of what we're going to be studying today. If you're a believer, this, you are going to, at the end of this passage, just say, praise God, praise God that I am safe and secure in Christ. But if, 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 please, if you don't know Christ, maybe you know about the gospel, maybe you know the facts of the gospel, maybe you know about Christmas and Easter, but you've never submitted your life to the lordship of Christ, I am here today under the authority of the exposition of God's word to try to scare you severely. This is a scary passage for those who don't know Christ. It is a most encouraging passage for those who do. The Bible has, is a book of warnings, and it tells us to prepare for Christ's coming. He's coming. Are you ready? If you're not ready, you should be afraid, deadly afraid, mortally afraid, eternally afraid, and also overwhelmingly excited that God has offered for you today a door through which you can come to God, and that door is his son, Jesus Christ. The place to begin is where this passage picks up and where it left us off last week. You'll know, as we said last, uh, in our last study, that verses 8 and 9, excuse me, 9 and 10, really operate in tandem with one another. Uh, they really explain one another. Much more than, verse 9 says, having now been justified, made righteous by his blood, the death of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We, we studied that. For if we were enemies, that's those who are under the wrath of God, the parallel, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the idea of enmity or being in a state of being an enemy with God and the idea of being under the wrath of God are one and the same. I want you to look specifically at verse 10. And as we do so together, we'll discover two ways the gospel mediates the greatest conflict. Two ways the gospel mediates, solves 
the greatest conflict. Now, to begin with that, you need to understand that the greatest conflict in the history of the cosmos, in the universe, is between God and man. And that conflict is clearly articulated in this verse by the word enemies. When we were enemies with God. The gospel, however, mediates that great conflict. The first way we discover is that the gospel reconciles the greatest enemies. The gospel brings into a reconciliation state the greatest enemies in the universe. Look at the first part of verse 10. For if, and that doesn't mean if perchance, it just means because. For because we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Stop right there. One of the most difficult realities to comprehend for anyone is that man is born in enmity with his or her creator. How can that cute little bundle of joy we brought home from the hospital be an enemy of God? Well, just wait till they're two and you figure that out really fast. Every person ever born is a cosmic, sinful, treacherous traitor of God. Now that sounds heavy, that sounds like bad news, but unless you understand that that bad news is real, the good news of the gospel won't be good news. Unless sin is the problem, the gospel won't be the solution. If you go back to Romans 1, Paul calls us haters of God, not neutral, not those who are displeasurable with God. We are haters in an active state of open rebellion against the Creator. The challenge of every unbeliever's heart is that of Exodus 5.2. Remember what Pharaoh said to Moses? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's the question of every unbeliever ever born. Why should I obey God? Listen to the pundits on CNN and Fox News. Listen to them talk. Listen to when the religious discussions come up. Ultimately, they're all asking this question. Who is God that I should obey him? Now, it sounds like they're saying, who are you that I should listen to you? But when a man quotes the scripture and quotes God as the source and authority, and a person pushes back against that, the question is really, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And then you begin this, this ever cycle of trying to silence God by saying things like this. Well, the Bible can't possibly mean now what it meant then because we're a far more civilized society and God has certainly changed his ways. He was dealing with a Greco-Roman culture in Palestine then. He's dealing with a modern culture now. He certainly doesn't mean that the things that were sinful then are sinful now. Who is the Lord that you should obey his voice? The book of Romans in the first four chapters tells us who the Lord is. He is righteous. He is holy. He is absolutely perfect and demands that same response from wicked sinners who will never be able to meet that standard. Which is why he sent his son to do it for us and on behalf of us. Job 21 15. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreat him? It's a great question. What do we get out of life if we give up our life for God? Jesus answered that, didn't he? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Forfeit his soul. One contemporary author says, 
Christianity is about experiencing your best life now. Can I just tell you, I'm not at all interested in my best life being now. I want it to be in heaven forever. And if your best life is now, then Jesus sure overstated our case here on the planet. Man's in an open rebellion to God. Psalm 10.4 The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. Tries to push out of his mind or as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth. Pack it inside his suitcase. Get it out of his mind that there is a God. You want to know why most crimes and sin happen in darkness and at night? Because there is this idea that if it is unseen, it is unnoticed by not only man, but by God. What does Psalm 139 say? Even the darkness is light to you. Romans 8, 7, because the mind is set of the, uh, on the flesh, and listen to this, it is hostile toward God. That's a big word. The mind of an unbeliever is hostile toward God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I know really nice unbelievers. I have some neighbors who are really nice. They, they take care of my mail when I'm gone. They, they, they take care of my dog when I'm gone. They, they're nice to me. That, that, that's different than being in open, hostile rebellion to God. Colossians 1.21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. That means alienated from God, hostile toward God in your mind. Remember what verse 9 taught us last study. That this enmity, this being an enemy with God, is primarily on God's side toward us. Yes, we are hostile to God. Yes, we are enemies of God from our perspective. Yes, we say, who is the Lord that I should obey with him? Yes, the unbeliever says, there is no God. But the main primary source of that enmity between God and us is not us toward God, it's God toward us. That'll make sense in the tense of the verbs in a moment. Now, to understand this, I want you to travel back to Romans chapter 1. Go back to Romans 1 for a moment. Verses 9 and 10 talk about wrath and enmity. Those are one and the same. Being an enemy of God means being under his wrath, being objects of his wrath. Verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God this, that makes us in God's crosshairs is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It's comprehensive. No one gets a pass. And all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. As we looked at that verse when we studied it, it's the idea of having that suitcase that's full and overstuffed and you have to sit on top of it and have someone stuff the stuff in there to clasp it closed. That's the idea. We're stuffing away God's truth, getting it out of our minds so that we're, we're not condemned by our own conscience. Because that which is known about God is obvious. It's evident within them. For God made it evident to them. There is no such thing as an intellectual atheist. You can choose to become an atheist, but no one is born that way. God makes it evident within the heart that he exists. And then the suppression of truth is where you finally conclude there's no God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his divine nature, has been, his eternal power has been clearly seen how? Being understood through that which has been made, for they are without excuse. Can you watch 
a beautiful Midwestern sunrise or sunset and say, what an expression of evolutionary process. For even though they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks, they become useless, futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here it is, verse 23. And here's your word. Exchanged the glory of God, the incorruptible God, for idols, for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. God's wrath, if you can boil that all down, God's wrath abides on humanity because they have exchanged the truth of God for idols, for images. You want to, in our vernacular, for things in this world that bring us meaning, significance, pleasure, and happiness instead of God himself. Ultimate utilitarianism. What does this world do for me? What does this world give me? What do relationships do for me? It's all selfish. All idolatry is really worshiping yourself. It's creating an idol that will give you and I what we want. The terms in this verse, back to verse 5, chapter 5, enemies in verse 10 and reconciled are connected to what we saw back in verse 1. Look at Romans 5, 1 for a second. Such a tight argument. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's a summary of the first four chapters, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. This is not a change in the sinner's attitude toward God where we're hostile to God, and then one day we said, ah, I think I'm going to yawn and, and make a truce with God. We've been at war too long since birth, so I'm going to make a peace treaty with God. It's a fundamental change in the attitude of God towards us, not us toward God. In the gospel, God brought reconciliation to those who believe. And reconciliation, as you know, is a major theme in the writings of Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We, we could stop right here for, for a long time. God reconciles us to himself through Christ, and then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation, of seeing that other people are reconciled to God as well. That's called evangelism. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Whenever you see the idea of reconciliation happening in the Bible, it's always God reconciling himself to us and us to him. It's never us reconciling ourselves to God. In fact, when Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians, I beg you, be reconciled to God. He's saying, receive what God has already done for you. Don't call a, a peace treaty with God. God is a reconciler. Aren't you glad God is a reconciler? And he wants us to be the same. He wants us to be ministers of reconciliation. By the way, the language of this text is excruciating. 
It does not say the death of Christ. It does not say the death of Jesus. It does not say we were reconciled by the death of the Messiah. It does not say we were reconciled by the death of the Son of God, and all those are true. By the Son of Man, rather. Instead, though, it says we're reconciled by the death of God's Son. Isn't that interesting that of all the descriptions of Jesus that Paul could have chosen here, he personalizes it and says, remember that God reconciled you at the expense of his only begotten Son. This is an exposition of John 3.16. He gave his only begotten Son. Enemies of God. Ever seen yourself as God's enemy? Now, hopefully, as a believer, you say, well, I'm not an enemy now. But worship really begins with an appreciation that you are no longer an enemy, which means you recognize the enmity we had with God. Come back to that in a moment. The first way the gospel mediates the greatest conflict is that it reconciles the greatest enemies, namely God and man. Now, that's fully and further explained, secondly, in that the gospel delivers the greatest rescue. The gospel delivers the greatest rescue. It's just hard to read the, this passage. There's a word in the Greek that, appear, that occurs four times during these, these verses. We, we find it now in this next phrase. It's just almost unreadable. It's almost unspeakable. After saying that God has reconciled us to himself as enemies through the death of his only son, much more, much more, what's better than that? Well, he's actually making an argument here. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here we have that argument we've looked at three times before in this passage of the lesser, of the greater to the lesser, rather. More than that, much more than. If God can save his enemies, how much more can he keep his friends? That's the point. If God can save his enemies, how much more are we secure? Can he keep his friends? Listen, if you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, this is a fastball for you. This is a wonderful truth. Now, let me open up the Greek text for you for a moment. The Greek verb here for reconciled is used twice. In both places is passive. Having been reconciled, God reconciled. In other, in other words, we're, we're not the ones doing the reconciliation. We're not the ones calling a, 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 a truce, a peace treaty with God. God reconciled us. God was the only agent in our reconciliation. All we did, all we do, all you can do is believe that. That, again, is the doctrine of justification by faith. What's the word? Alone. We didn't fly to Geneva, meet with the United Nations, ask for an audience with God and say, let's work out a treaty so that we have peace. God is the only one who made peace. 
Now remember this te- what this text informs us. We were helpless, ungodly, unlovable, sinners, unreconciled, and unrighteous enemies of God. As we've said over and over, if you have spiritual self-esteem issues, Romans is not the book for you. It lays it out as clearly as possible. We were absolutely in danger and in trouble with God. Griffith Thomas, old commentator, says this, if love can die for us when we were in a repulsive state of impotence, much more now that we are reconciled will it cherish and keep us. If the death of Christ was the means of our reconciliation, then the life of Christ will be the means of our preservation. The point's simple. If God reconciled us as his enemies, he will surely save us in the end as his friends. The way you can have assurance looking forward is by looking back to what he did on the cross through his son to reconcile you. If he did the harder work of dying on the cross for you, will he not do the easier work of saying, come on to heaven? That's the point. Argument from the greater issue to the easier issue. Specifically, the argument goes like this. If God saved, reconciled us, changed us from enemies to friends through the giving of his son's death, how much more now that we are reconciled, now that we are friends with God, will he save us from his wrath, his enmity with us by his son's life? See where it says there? You have two things going on here, Christ's death and Christ's life in the same verse. If God performed that powerfully precious execution and sacrifice of his son and his death, he will surely perform the less costly service now that his enemies are his friends. Two other passages, by the way, deal with this in depth. We looked at one, 2 Corinthians 5. 19 to 20, Colossians 1, 20 to 21 also talk about he, his reconciliation with us. He reconciled us. Reconciliation will never be important to you until you understand your enmity with God. Worship of God's reconciling nature will never be at its apex until we remember that we were enemies in the target of God's wrath. If you're an unbeliever, you are in danger. You are in trouble with God. He doesn't grade on a curve. There's one standard, and it's perfection. I mean, the gospel is so wonderful and so impossible. Jesus says in Matthew 6, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. Well, anybody qualify for that? Only one person qualified. As we've said over and over, we'll probably say this a thousand more times in Romans, the great exchange of the gospel is that God in the cross at his resurrection gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus in our account so that now we're seen by God the Father through the Son as perfect and righteous. 
See, what happens to our sin? He took our sin and he placed that on the cross and crucified it in the precious body of his own beloved son. That's the good news. Is that good news? That's, that's the gospel. Romans 1.1 1, 1, the gospel of God, Romans 1, 3, concerning his son. The good news of God is his son, that there is a savior. John Stott writes, if we Christians dare to say that we are going to heaven when we die and that we are sure of final salvation, as we dare say, it is not because we are self-righteous or self-confident. It is because we believe in the steadfast love of God, the love that will not let us go. We're saved in the end. Look at the end of verse 10. By his life. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, if Jesus' life is not alive now, then we are of all men to be pitied. We have no hope, Paul says. Most of you know this, but if you read the book of Acts and you read the epistles, Paul speaks more of Jesus' resurrection than he does his crucifixion. Having said that, you have to have the crucifixion to talk about the resurrection. So they're one and the same. For him to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus go hand in glove. He can't talk about the one without the other. I like the idea of living a cross-centered life. I like the idea better of living a cross and resurrection-centered life. One of my heroes in the Puritan world is Thomas Watson. In fact, my, my oldest son's middle name is Thomas. Um, and that was because Thomas Watson had made such a profound impact on me. He has such an incredible way of, of grabbing truth and illustrating it by simile and by metaphor and by being pithy in a way that makes you have windows into truth like no other writer I've ever read. He says this, Death begins a wicked man's hell, but it puts an end to a godly man's hell. Think about that. Death begins a wicked man's hell, an unsaved unbeliever's hell, but it puts an end to the righteous, to the saved, to the godly man's hell. Randy Alcorn says, this world is as close as a believer will ever get to hell, and this world is as close as an unbeliever will ever get to heaven. Watson goes off. This is, it's a little bit old English language, but I think you can track with me. Listen to this illustration. And if you are, listen, if you're unconverted, if you haven't given your life to Christ, listen to these words and do the math and do the calculus of this quote. Thomas Watson. After innumerable millions of years, the wrath of God is as far from ending as it was when it began. Here it is. If all the earth and all the sea were made into sand and every thousand years, once every thousand years, a bird 
would come and take away one grain of that sand. It would be a long while before that vast heap of sand were emptied. But if after all that time the damned might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But there is none. This word ever, forever, regarding hell, breaks the heart. I've shared with you over and over, hell and its torments, hell and its tortures, hell and its separation from God. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, you either repent or you go mad thinking about the reality of hell. The most dramatic part of being an enemy with God, being under God's wrath, as this text tells us, being aimed in a trajectory for hell as an unbeliever, is there's never, ever a second chance. There's never an appeal. There's never a talking God out of what he's done. It's, it's, it's over. It's done. Watson says that if every thousand, if the whole world was grains of sand and every thousand years a bird came and took away one grain and at the end of that you would get another chance, there would be hope. There's not that chance. What keeps you from Christ? What, what causes you to remain God's enemy when he has provided reconciliation for you? You don't have to do anything but believe. Doesn't that sound too good to be true? It should sound too good to be true. That's the whole point of the first six chapters, the first five chapters of Romans is, really? Remember the Jews in this day who thought that they could work themselves to God kept scratching their heads and saying, Paul, what about all these commandments? What about all this obedience? And God said, you can't obey enough. You, you can't be righteous enough. Only Christ did that for you, so you believe in what he's done for you and the life that he gives you. My most fearful reality as a pastor, my most fearful reality as an elder in, in Christ church, what haunts me most is not folks driving up and down Mission Road right now. I want them to come to Christ. We should go out and lay in the road and say, stop, let me tell you about your soul. What haunts me most is where we began in Romans, excuse me, in Matthew 7, that we would have people week in and week out under the preaching of God's word who would in their heart be entertaining sinful disbelief, who would not have honored Christ by giving him their life in belief and obedience, who haven't submitted to his lordship, who will show up at the judgment actually so deceived that they deceive themselves and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, actually, you didn't. You were relying on your works, not my son's death and resurrection. Are, are you converted? Do you believe? If preaching the gospel to those who claim to know Christ is offensive to you, then just join me in being in the New Testament. Paul did it all the time. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
Examine yourself unless you recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Please test yourself. Test yourself. The stakes are too high. Eternity is too long. The reconciliation of God in Christ is too wonderful for you to sit and enjoy another sermon and walk out and say, I'll deal with that later. Deal with that today. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. And then be reconciled by believing what Christ has done for you if you believe. So, are you safe from God's wrath? Are you in danger from God's wrath? Are you God's enemy? Will you be reconciled by God and His work through His Son on the cross, raised from the dead for you? He's done it all. Will you believe? For to as many as believed, He gave the right to become children of God. Will you believe? Do you believe? Please believe. Let me beg you, believe. Don't leave the building without that. Lunch will wait. You can skip it and have supper. Don't leave without talking to someone about your soul, please. Watching the news last night, and it read just like Matthew 24 and 25. What does Jesus say? Be on the alert. He could come back. You know what Peter says? Here, the day will come. Peter's in the same generation as Jesus. Peter says, you know, the day's going to come, and it already was then, where people will say, you say Jesus is coming? Ha, he hasn't come back in a long time. He's not coming back. And as soon as they say and think that, beware, be on the alert, he's at the door. Are you ready for his return? Can you say, Maranatha, Lord, come today, please, come today. And does the threat of him coming, promise of him coming, make you look at your neighbors and your family and your coworkers a little differently? So you tell them about Christ and you're embarrassed. So you tell them about Christ and they make fun of you. I love what the writer of the Hebrews says. Have you, have you yet suffered to the point of shedding blood? Some are today. Just read an issue in Sudan with a guy who, who did. We've got it pretty easy. Are you willing to be counted as a fool for Christ's sake? Let's bow together. If you're an unbeliever, I would beg you, come to the prayer room after we sing. It's going to be to my right. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you and show you the gospel, bear a burden with you. And if you're a Christian, does this truth in verses 9 and 10 freshly make you aware of the greatness and sweetness of your salvation? The gospel mediates the greatest conflict. We're his friends. We are his brothers.
Father, how can we say anything but thank you? So burdened that there could be people who have heard your word for weeks, months, years, decades, and have yet to bend the knee to your son and believe in who he is and in what he's done to give him their affections and their worship. Break stubborn hearts. Grant belief. Not only for your great glory in heaven, but so that they will be saved from the wrath to come. All because of your son, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.